Chapter 4 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand. There was an uneasy silence for a minute or two, and then the captain spoke again. There cannot be a doubt of it, he said. My lads, he continued, advancing towards a number of men who were gathered in a confused huddle on the forecastle. I have a few words to say to you. We have traitors on board. The ship has been run intentionally on the reef. By and by, a searching inquiry will have to be made respecting it. Meanwhile, I shall take the necessary steps for preserving discipline, and I call upon all here to help me in doing so. Let those who are willing to support me come forward and say so. The men looked doubtfully at one another, and presently the greater part of them slunk off and went below. About a dozen of the best hands remained, and, going up to the captain, declared their resolution of standing by him whatever might happen. Thank you, my hearts, said the captain. That's cheery. There is nearly a dozen of you, I see. There's Radburn, Marks, Coxwell, Daly, Rutley, Wall, Bateman, Hurd, Hooper, and Cooksley. I am obliged to you all, and I hope your example may help to keep the others right. But we must guard against a possible outbreak. The first thing will be to bring out some of the arms and distribute them. I had them all stowed away in my cabin yesterday, half expecting something of this kind. Come with me, Mr. Rivers, and we'll hand them up. This was soon done, and it was found that enough had been brought up to make an ample supply for all the party. Besides the carbines, revolvers, and cutlasses, there were several rifles belonging to the officers and passengers. The captain had two, the surgeon and first mate, one each. Vander Hayden and Moritz, George and Margitz also had one each, and all these gentlemen were well acquainted with the use of their weapons. They were a formidable party. Even supposing that all the crew, excepting those on deck, joined the mutineers, as the captain evidently feared they would, they might well hesitate to attack so well-armed and determined a company. At all events, it looked as if such was the case. I wonder where Bostock and the others can be, remarked Walters, when half an hour had passed and everything remained quiet below. I have no doubt where they are, said Captain Rankin. They are ransacking Mr. Whitaker's cabin, fancying that what they want is there. Though cleverly hidden away, it is fortunate that they made that mistake, as it has allowed us time to make our preparations. Now the next thing is to send a boat to Mosel Bay, which is the nearest place where any ships are likely to be found, and request that something may be sent to fetch the crew and cargo off this reef. The Pinace, the most suitable boat for the purpose, was accordingly got ready, and by the time this had been done, and the men chosen who were to go in her, the first mate had recovered sufficiently to take charge of her. When he was informed of what had happened, he said he had no doubt the opium must have been given him in a glass of grog, which he had taken before going on deck. He had poured it out, he said, and mixed it, when he unexpectedly received a message that the captain wanted to speak with him immediately in the cabin. He had hastened thither, but found the door locked. Supposing that the captain had gone on deck, he had hurriedly drunk off the grog and followed him. The opium must have been put in while he was out of the cabin. He remembered that there had been something strange in the taste, but he was thinking of important matters and did not notice trifles, he supposed. Do you remember who it was that brought you the message? asked Captain Rankin. Not very clearly, replied Mr. Wyndham but I fancy it was Sherwin. 
Likely enough, remarked the captain. He and Van Rijk are this man Bostock's bosom friends. Well, all this must be gone into at a later time. What we have to do now is get away as quickly as we can. There isn't any hope of getting the ship off the reef, is there? asked Reggie. Not the slightest. She can never swim again. But we must remember that our chief danger is from these mutinous scoundrels. I am convinced this plot has been hatched since we left Cape Town. I understand that all you gentlemen are prepared to stand by me, he continued, addressing himself more particularly to Vander Hayden and Moritz, who had hitherto said very little. I am prepared to do my part, answered Vander Hayden, bowing somewhat haughtily. If we are attacked, I shall, of course, protect my sister and property. I have no doubt mein Herr Moritz will do the same. Certainly, said Moritz, in a more friendly tone. I am prepared to stand by the captain, whatever may happen. I thank you, said the captain. Then we have twenty men on whom we can rely. I am afraid I must reduce the number to sixteen, as I cannot send less than three men with Wyndham in the Pinace. But sixteen will, I hope, be sufficient for our purpose. We must keep an armed watch, four of us in my cabin and four on deck, relieving every four hours. I will take charge of one party. Mr. Rolfe, the second mate, had better take the other. Remember the spirit room must be carefully watched, and anyone fired on who tries to force it. The dawn had broken before the work was half done, and it was morning when the pinnace, with the first mate and his men on board, took its departure. There was a favorable breeze in shore, and to Mosel Bay it was only an hour or two sail, but it was quite uncertain how long it might be before she could return, or rather how long it might be before another vessel could be sent large enough to carry off the crew and cargo. There might not be any such vessel in the bay, and Mr. Wyndham might have to go overland to Cape Town before the required assistance could be procured. In this event, of course, there would be a much longer delay, several days perhaps. If this should prove to be the case, their situation would be far from agreeable. To say nothing of the danger from the mutinous sailors, if a storm should come on, the ship might go to pieces, and their only hope then would be to get on the reef itself and shelter themselves as well as they could until help came. Vander Hayden suggested that such as chose it might be allowed to get on board the three remaining boats and make their way to Mosel Bay from whence they might get across the country to their destination at Natal. But the captain would not agree to this. He pointed out that of the three remaining boats, the launch had been so damaged when the ship ran on the reef that it could not swim. Another, the longboat, was in such a position that it could not be got at, unless with the consent of the party below, and the remaining one would not hold more than four or five with safety. They were but just enough as it was to resist an attack. If they should be further reduced in numbers, the safety of those who remain behind would be seriously imperiled. And what is to become of my sister? exclaimed Vander Hayden. If these scoundrels do attack us, we will all die in her defense, will we not, lads? exclaimed Captain Rankin, looking round him. He was answered by a cheer. Nay, do not think of me, said Ankin. I am not afraid. Anyway, I cannot allow the safety of the others to be endangered in order to preserve me from harm. There was a second cry of approval. "'None of us will allow a hair of your head to be hurt,' cried Margetts. "'No,' said Rivers. "'You may be sure of that. "'But I would nevertheless suggest the boat be launched "'and kept in readiness for an emergency. "'If we should be attacked and overpowered, "'that might enable some of us at the last moment to escape. "'In any case, if a skirmish appears imminent, "'Miss Vander Hayden and her brother might be put on board "'and lie off the reef until the result of the encounter is known.' Why do you propose that, sir? exclaimed Vander Hayden angrily. 
Do you suppose I am a coward, that I should shrink from an encounter with these scoundrels? I implied nothing of the kind, sir, returned Rivers. I was only carrying out your own suggestion. I suppose Miss Vander Hayden could not be put into the boat with no one to take care of her? Vander Hayden would have made an angry answer, but the captain interposed. You are quite wrong, Mr. Vander Hayden, and, I must add, ungrateful too. Mr. Rivers merits our thanks for his suggestion, which I shall at once put in force. We had better launch the boat at once, while the deck is in our possession. As soon as she is in the water, we can put a few provisions in her, and then she can lie off at a little distance. We had better set to work upon that at once. All hands went to work accordingly with a will, and presently the gig was lowered, and got ready for sailing. Then dinner was served, and the afternoon passed quietly away. Bostock and his companions, if they had intended any violence, appeared to have abandoned the idea. Probably the captain's promptitude had disheartened them, so it was thought. And as they knew the Pinace had been sent off to Mosel Bay, they were aware that assistance would probably come from the shore in a few hours' time. Late in the afternoon, the captain, who was very tired, went down to get a few hours' sleep. He was aroused not long afterwards by Rivers. Captain, said the latter, I fear mischief is brewing. What makes you suppose that? said the captain, who had roused himself on the instant. There are two things I don't like. In the first place, the men must have got into the spirit room. Hasn't careful watch been kept upon it? asked the captain. Yes, said George, most careful watch. No one has approached the door the whole day. They must have broken into the room another way. Anyway, there is furious drinking going on on the lower deck. I clambered round on the outside and could see what was passing. Bostock, Van Ryke, and Sherwin are inciting the men to drink. Half of them indeed are drunk already. Could you hear what they were saying? asked the captain. Not very distinctly. There was too much shouting and yelling. But I could make out that they were inciting the men to attack us. They would hardly do that, answered the captain. They know we are armed and on our guard. No doubt. But they are armed too. Armed? Are you sure? I myself conveyed all the arms in the ship into the cabin on the night after we left Cape Town. In that case... There is either a traitor among the men who have access to your cabin, or they have brought their own arms on board. All the fellows we suspect are provided with cutlasses and revolvers, and I could see more lying about on the tables and benches. Was Anderson my servant among them? Yes, he was one of the most forward, apparently, of any. He is the traitor, then. But that is of little consequence now. Do you think they will make their attack soon? Not for another hour or two, I should say. They may ultimately succeed in getting the men to join them, but they are not ripe for it yet. An hour or two may be enough time. Come with me, Rivers. I shall want your help. The captain went on deck and, calling three or four of his best hands together, told them what he had learned. By his instructions, they provided eight or ten stout spars, which they carried down below and placed as a barricade, at the distance of about eight or ten feet from the captain's cabin lashing the ends of the spars so as to make it impossible for anyone to pass. Then the other hatchways were secured, and a man set to guard each. The captain next went down, accompanied by Rivers and Vanderhaden, taking with him the second mate Rolf, as well as Marks, Daly, Wall, and Bateman, four of the stoutest and most trustworthy of the sailors. Place these in positions which would command the barricade, some in the cabin, some in the passage. The strictest silence was to be observed, and no one was to fire until the word was given. The captain then lighted his dark lantern, obscuring the light until the moment of action should arrive. Ankin had been sent on deck under the charge of Moritz. 
Vander Hayden having insisted on remaining below. But Whitaker, Margots, and Walters had constituted themselves her special bodyguard. When all had taken their places, a long silence ensued. The shouts of the men below were now more plainly heard. It was evident that they were fast becoming drunk, and at any moment the expected attack might be made. Presently, the noise below ceased. They are getting ready, whispered the captain to George. We shall have them up in another moment. His words had hardly been uttered before they were made good by the sound of feet stealthily ascending the stairs. They think to take us unawares, continued the captain. They don't suspect anything about the barricade. Presently there was a cry of surprise, followed by a volley of oaths. Then a light was struck, and the mutineers were seen trying to tear down the spars which blocked their passage. You had better leave off that and go below, shouted Captain Rankin. We are prepared for you. If you attempt to remove those spars, you will take the consequences. Let fly at them, said a voice from which the captain recognized as that of Bostock. Let fly at them, and particularly at that Dutchman. Half a dozen pistols were discharged, three of them directly leveled at Vander Hayden, who was standing close to the captain. He had a narrow escape. One of the bullets would have struck him in the heart if Captain Rankin had not at the moment changed his position, and it struck his epaulette. A second grazed his temple. The third was lodged in the partition behind him. Your blood be on your own heads, cried the skipper. Fire on them. A general discharge followed, by which it was evident considerable execution was done. Several were seen to fall, and among them Bostock and Van Rijk. But whether these were killed or dangerously wounded did not appear. They were either able, however, to crawl down below, or were carried off by their companions. They got that hot and strong, sir, remarked Rolf. I don't think they'll try it again. It depends a good deal on whether the leaders are killed or severely wounded, returned the captain. As for Bostock, you hit him fairly, Mr. Vander Hayden. The bullet struck him below the hip, but whether it was a slight or a severe wound, I can't say. I think it was only a flesh wound, rejoined the Dutchman. The other fellow, Van Rijk, his name is, I believe, was more seriously hurt, I fancy. I hope he is. If those two men should be silenced, we needn't be afraid of the others. Well, we are safe for the night, I think, and we must hope that help will come tomorrow. The captain's words were so far made good that the rest of the night passed in quiet. The forenoon of the next day was a time of great anxiety, which no one felt so keenly as the captain. He knew that if Wyndham did not return, it could be only because some accident had happened to his boat, or because he had been unable to obtain any help in Mosel Bay, and had been compelled to go overland to Cape Town. The distance thither from Mosel Bay was more than two hundred miles, and the means of getting there not easy to procure. Even if he could find horses to carry him the whole distance, it would probably take him a day or two to reach the town. Then, no doubt, a vessel would be fitted with as little delay as possible, but probably two or three days more must elapse before it could reach the reef. Altogether, it was not unlikely that a full week would pass, during which they would have to remain in their present situation, unless, indeed, they could attract the attention of some passing vessel. As the hours went by, the captain grew more and more despondent, and at last it became only too evident that Wyndham's speedy return could not be looked for. We are in for this, Rivers, he said, as they stood together on the deck, looking anxiously toward shore, half an hour or so before sunset. 
Unless we are picked up by some ship, we may have to stay a week on this reef, and there is no disguising that, if it should be so, our lives are in the greatest danger. Do you apprehend a storm coming on, sir? asked Rivers. I see no signs of that, though in this climate the changes of weather are so rapid that one is never secure for six hours together. But that is not what I am afraid of. These men will get desperate, the ringleaders, that is. They know there is a rope round their necks in consequence of last night's work, and they will get away from the reef at all hazards before Wyndham's return, if by possibility they can. I don't see how they can force their way on deck in the face of our fire any more than they did last night, sir. I don't see how they could remove the barricade either. They might contrive to cut the ropes which hold one of the spars, said the captain. That is, if they could work in the dark but I shall take care that the passage is kept lighted all night, so that they won't attempt that. I think they will try to blow up the hatchways. They have got plenty of powder, and it would not be a difficult thing to do. They would lose some men in forcing their way up, but their numbers so greatly exceed ours that, once on deck, we should have no chance with them. You think all the ship's company will go along with Bostock and Van Rijk, then? I am a good deal afraid of it. I don't think they'd have done this of their own heads, but these two rascals are exceedingly clever, and will, I have no doubt, make out a plausible story. They will persuade the poor fellows that, if they are caught, they will be charged with mutiny for what has been done already. They'll tell them it is their only hope to get off the reef before help comes, and they must cut all our throats to accomplish that. And we can't take to the boats and be gone ourselves? That is what the Dutchman proposed yesterday. But I then pointed out that we cannot get to the long boat without exposing ourselves to the fire of the mutineers. Nor would they, of course, let us repair the other boat, even if she could be repaired. I only guessed then that they would attack us. It is unfortunately only too certain now. We should simply be playing their game. If they could overpower us, or in plain English, murder us, they would no doubt go off in the three boats, or make a raft, if the boats would not hold them all. But while we remain here, that would be impossible. No, resumed the captain presently. We must go on as we have begun. It really looks as though the men were unable to devise any plan of attacking us, in which case it is most probable that they will submit and throw themselves upon my mercy. It is only against a few, you see, that direct mutiny can be proved. Nor have I quite given up the hope that Wyndham may have found a ship at Mausel Bay though her sailing may have been delayed. Perhaps the men also are reckoning on the possibility of that, and will not commit themselves further until they feel sure that he will have to go on to Cape Town for help. But all that we can do is to keep a bright lookout and be ready for action at a moment's notice. I shall go and lie down now for two or three hours, as I feel quite worn out. But I shall trust you, Rivers, to rouse me if there should be the slightest necessity. You are the only man on board I can thoroughly trust, for, though Rolf and McCarthy are good fellows, they are not equal to an emergency. But you know what you are about. They parted. George took a turn or two up and down the deck, apparently buried in thought. Then he laid aside his cutlass and pistols, put on a sailor's jacket that was lying on the deck, and tied a handkerchief round his head. Having completed these preparations without attracting notice, he disappeared below. It was about three hours afterwards that the captain was a second time aroused from his sleep by a hand laid on his chest. He started up instantly and was about to speak when George Rivers, who was his visitor, stopped him. 
Don't wake the others, sir, he said. If you will come on deck, I have something important to tell you. I wish to say, sir, he continued when they were seated out of the sight and hearing of any of their companions, that I have been down among the men and have learned pretty accurately what they mean to do. Down among the men? Among the mutineers? exclaimed the captain. How did you manage that? Well, it was not so difficult, sir. Several of the men had left their jackets on deck, as well as a handkerchief or two. I put two of these on, pulling the handkerchief well over my forehead, so that by the dim light on the lower deck it was hardly possible that I could be recognized, even if anyone noticed, which was hardly likely. Then I untied one of the ropes, and so got through the barricade. I went to the head of the ladder and listened. There was a loud and angry talking going on, and several of the speakers seemed to be more than half drunk. I crept cautiously down, ready to make a bolt up again if anyone hailed me, but they were all too busy to notice me. I crept into a corner and lay down, as if asleep, drawing a sailcloth half over me. I lay there for a couple of hours, I should think, and learned all I wanted to know. After that, I took advantage of a violent quarrel which broke out among them, to creep upstairs in the same way as I had crept down, and then secured the spar. You have done nobly, exclaimed the skipper. And what have you learned? I learned, first of all, that nothing will be attempted tonight, though an attempt will be made tomorrow. In the first place, it appears that Sherman was one of those killed in the skirmish, though they contrived to carry him off. Van Rijk and Bostock were wounded, though not severely. Bostock was hit in the right leg and is unable to use it, though the wound is already greatly better. They won't stir unless he leads them, and that he can't do this evening. That is fortunate. They are not afraid of Wyndham's return, then? No. They seem to feel sure that he has failed to find a ship in Mosel Bay. Indeed, one of the men said he had gone over to the bay from Cape Town only a day or two before the Zulu Queen sailed, and there was no ship there, and none expected. I feared as much, said the captain. Well, then, what are the men's intentions? Do they all go along with Bostock? I am afraid they do, returned George. Bostock has persuaded them that there is an enormous sum of money in gold stowed away in the cabin, enough, as he told them, to make them all rich for life. If it hadn't been for the barricade, he said, of which no one had any idea, this would have been in their possession already. But as it is, it is theirs as soon as they choose to seize it. They evidently believe they can get on deck whenever they please. Did you ascertain how? interrupted the captain eagerly. Not exactly, sir. But I fancy they mean to blow a hole in the ship's side, and so get down on to the reef, which at low water extends for several feet beyond the ship. Yes, yes, said the captain. I was afraid so. No doubt they could do that. Go on. Well, I expect they will make their way out in that manner, and... Although we may be able to kill half a dozen of them before they knock us on the head, they would certainly do so, sooner or later. None of our party is to be spared, except, I am sorry to say, Miss Vander Hayden. Bostock means to carry her off with him. The brute! exclaimed the captain. He shan't do that, Rivers. No, sir. I would blow out her brains with my own hands sooner than allow it. And so, to do him justice, would her brother. Or Mr. Moritz, either. Nay! I am persuaded she would do it herself. Well, Rivers, we are in for this, and we must get out of it the best way we can. But I must own I am at my wit's end. Can you suggest anything? It has occurred to me, Captain, that we might possibly, if we were hard-driven, get on the other part of the reef yonder, 
and take provisions with us enough to last two or three days. They couldn't get at us there, I imagine. The captain looked in the direction to which George pointed. There was another reef, or, more properly, another part of the same reef, divided from that on which the ship was lying by a deep channel some twenty or thirty yards wide. It rose a good deal higher out of the water, and was so plainly visible at all states of the tide that nothing but design, or the most culpable carelessness, could have caused the disaster. That is a good thought, he said. If ever I command a ship again, I must make you my first mate. That reef will be our salvation. We must not lose a moment in getting across and taking all we want with us. Go and wake all the hands, and bring them on deck at once. If we wait for the moon, the rascals may see us. It is lucky that we have Marks and Cooksley, the ship's carpenters, among our party. End of chapter 4